everyone, and welcome to Roger's List. This is the show where I'm watching every single one of Roger Ebert's great movies with a rotating cast of amazing co-hosts. I'm Steve Guntley, and I have lots of love to give. My guest today is quietly judging all of us. <laughs> Returning once again, back from the from from year months and months ago, Michaela Nicholson is back on the show. Ah! Hi. Hello. Thank you oh, for having me back. Like a like a frog from the sky, she has landed <laughs> upon this podcast to grace us with her guts once again. Uh, like a scuba diver scooped up from the sea. <laughs> like a surprising appearance of Patton Oswalt in a tree. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> welcome. I'm so happy to have you back, Michaela. It's been entirely too long. We, I, Thank I don't, you. I, I don't think we've, what was the last one we talked about? Was that woman under the influence? I believe so. I think yeah. that was my swan song. It's been a while. It's been a while, but we are yeah. happy to have you back because we are talking about a big old whopping movie and you put your name first and foremost on this one, uh, because, and, and you know, we, I just had to have you on to talk about it. We're talking about Magnolia. I Magnolia yeah. was released on December 17th, 1999. It's directed by Paul Thomas Anderson, and it stars, deep breath, Jeremy Blackman, Tom <laughs> Cruise, Melinda Dillon, Philip Baker Hall, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Ricky Jay, William H. Macy, Julianne Moore, John C. Riley, Jason Robards, Melora Walters, and Henry Gibson. Oh, my God. Nice job. Everyone well is in this movie. I'm having an interesting kind of series of threads on this show lately, so... I was taking a tour of the American South. We did Paris, Texas, followed immediately by Nashville. And now uh, we're we're splitting off of Nashville and going into Magnolia. I think these are two man. movies with a lot of common threads. Firstly, big auteur-driven, uh, multi-generational cast like of intersecting stories. And uh, even a couple of key cast members appear in both movies. So, you know, I, I think it's not a coincidence uh, that they're paying reference to this. But, but man, Michaela... You are you... watching... So many good movies lately. This has been a really good streak. Yeah, we've been a really good streak. Uh, so why did you want to talk about this one in particular? Um, well, I'm a big PTA fan. Yeah. Um, and I had actually just seen this movie for the first time less than a year ago. And um, I remember loving it and just feeling like so buzzed after it had ended. And I really enjoy these sort of like California ensemble pieces. Yeah. Um, and I think it's beautifully written. Uh, I love the frogs. I love Julianne Moore. I just, it, it really, I rewatched it the other night in preparation for this. And I had forgotten so much about it because it is such a like hefty movie and there's so much going on. And I just feel like there's like a bunch to unpack. So I'm, I'm, I'm pumped. I'm in the same boat because there's always like one or two very important threads that I forget about entirely. And it's not that they're, not important or not impactful it's just there is so much and there are some images in this movie that really sear like through to the brain but then you watch it again you're like wow we spend a lot of time on like this young boy who witnessed the crime scene and this you know the the stealing mm -hmm. of the gun and like all this other stuff so there's so much interesting stuff happening here uh this is mm -hmm. going to be our one and only time talking about pta about paul Thomas Anderson. Now, not many modern filmmakers are fundamental enough to be instantly recognizable by their initials, mm -hmm. but I think PTAs are in that <laughs> distinction. You know, I think you know what you know what you're saying. Mm -hmm. You know, pretty much, this is not the parent-teacher association we are talking about. Uh, although, unless you are, I don't know. You might have been. Um, I I think there's a very good argument to be made that he's the greatest living filmmaker. I don't think that's a controversial take necessarily. At least the greatest living American filmmaker. I don't know. Uh, yeah, he's up there. He's, he's one of the big boys. 
weirdly, I, I feel like he's still got kind of that uh, young upstart energy. Like, I think because he was just so accomplished mm-hmm. when he was so young, he's now 50 years old and he's got like this incredible body of work behind him. But there's still something uh, fresh about him, young I guess. And scrappy and hungry about him. Right. Yeah. Most of the filmmakers who like really popped during the 90s. The the shine has gone off the apple a little bit. Like you, you, we're not, we're really not that excited to see Kevin Smith movies anymore. There's even less <laughs> anticipation around like Tarantino movies to a certain degree. But like every yeah. time a PTA movie comes out, it's an event. It's something to be excited about because yeah. for he, some yeah. reason he doesn't feel like he would be in, in like an old boys club. Like he doesn't seem like a typical like Wes Anderson. Quentin Tarantino, Steven Spielberg, like the whole, like the, you know, there's something sort of like rebellious and, and, and he's got like a kick to him, I guess. And surprisingly, he does not strike me. I don't know. I I don't, I don't know the man, but I mean, he doesn't really strike me as someone (laughs) who is like super up his own ass about his craft or anything like that. He's got kind of, I hope so. He's got kind of an everyman vibe, even though he does make these very kind of, you know, I don't want to say pretentious because it's like a pejorative term, mm-hmm. but I do think he he has some artistic ambitions, you know, that are realized in his mm-hmm. movies. But so yeah. a little bit about. Oh, yeah. Oh, and yeah, yeah. Married, married to Maya Rudolph. Right? Married to Maya Rudolph. Yeah. Formerly oh. married to uh, Fiona Apple. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 I'm sure we'll talk about that. Fiona Apple's connection to this lady. Right. Yeah, yeah. She definitely has a connection to this. Uh, A little bit about PTA. He was born in 1970 in L.A., one of nine siblings. And his dad was a Hollywood voice actor who did a lot of, like, uh, uh, commercial work and things like that. He had kind of a rough relationship with his mom, which I think you see reflected in a lot of his movies, actually. Lots of of mommy issues being worked out. And Paul was just kind of one of those kids who knew exactly what he wanted to do from a very young age and never deviated. Like he he wanted to make movies since he was about eight years old and he's been shooting on like his family Betamax like around the house ever since then. Went to college specifically for that goal. Dropped out of college when he got his first job as a production assistant because I think he wisely realized he's going to learn more about filmmaking working on sets and working on things like that. So he was a PA on... Uh, numerous TV shows, movie sets, uh, and lots of game shows, which uh, plays in heavily in this movie. Mm -hmm. Uh, So while he was working those jobs, he used the money that his father had given him for tuition and instead put it towards a 20-minute short film called Cigarettes and Coffee, which is not to be confused with Coffee and Cigarettes, the Jim Jarmusch movie. (laughs) Um, That just seems rude. It seems rude. It seems rude. Uh, but he did bring, he brought this to Sundance uh, uh, in, I think, 1993, and uh, it screened in the shorts competition. And he was one of those filmmakers that had kind of an immediate buzz about him. Even just this one 20-minute short, people are like, oh, my God, who the hell is this guy? So he quickly entered a deal with Reicher Entertainment to make a feature-length adaptation of his short. That movie would go on to become uh, Sydney, a.k.a. Hard Eight, as it was eventually known in theaters. That came out in 1996. Uh, and it, it was like a critical uh, uh, hit. It, it got a very, very tiny release, but critics kind of paid attention to it. They're like, okay, well, this this kid's got something. Even Roger Ebert gave a really strong review. And it was his first time working with a lot of his standard stock cast. So Philip Baker Hall is in there, John C. Riley, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Melora Walters. And you also had Gwyneth Paltrow and Samuel L. Jackson in there just for good measure. Pretty amazing cast. Have you, for seen, a... have you seen Hard Eight, Steve? No, I haven't seen it. Is it good? Same. It's, it, I oh. haven't, it's the only PTA I haven't seen. 
I see. I haven't seen this one, and I haven't seen Inherent Vice. Uh, somehow oh, I skipped that. Oh, Inherent one. Vice! You gotta. <laughs> okay, you're you're a pro Inherent Vice. <laughs> yeah, I think I feel like I'm the only person in the world who's pro Inherent Vice. See, that seems to be the thing. That that seems to be generally <laughs> spoken about as kind of his one major misstep mm -hmm. uh, of his career. But I, I still have I like not it. seen it. I think it. it's fun. I, obviously, like yeah, <laughs> opinions are, are going to vary on that, <laughs> and I can't speak for it. I haven't seen it. But, I love the discourse. Yeah. I mean, the <laughs> the uh, the first movie that Paul Thomas Anderson made after Heart 8 was Boogie Nights. All right. Mm -hmm. And holy shit, what a second <laughs> movie to make. Uh, Boogie <laughs> Nights came out in 1997. It's up there for me. Top 10, top five favorite movies. Uh, oh, my God. Does that mean that PTA was like 26? 25 yeah. when he made Boogie Nights. Son of a bitch, right? Oh he was 28 yeah. when he did this movie, which is like uh, it's crazy. so wise and knowing and beyond its years. <laughs> fucking 28 year old. I'm like, God, I hate you. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, he, he, it was an instant critical sensation. I wound up getting nominated for three Oscars. Uh, it, it was, it, it doubled its money. This isn't like a Avengers level tentpole hit, but it doubled its money. And, uh, mm -hmm. So Magnolia came about because PTA was given a very, very cherry deal with New Line Cinema. They told him that they would uh, bankroll anything he wanted to make. He would get final cut and they didn't even need to read a script. They were so blown <laughs> away by Boogie Nights. He just got to do whatever the fuck he wanted. I mean, good for New Line. Oh, yeah. Come on. I mean, that, that's that's showing some really good judgment and that they were willing to take a risk. I feel like studios reserve that kind of treatment for like David Lynch and Tarantino and like, yeah. you know, they're just like, whatever, here's a check, do what you want, show us it when you're done. Right. And there, there's, I think there was kind of that vibe around PTA at the time. They're like, even, even at a very young age, they're like, all right, this guy's the future, you know, this is, uh, mm -hmm. we, we should, we need to throw our weight behind this guy as much as we can. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I mean, I'm a big fan of the, uh, the blank check podcast, you know, where they talk about, uh, uh, filmmakers that get a huge success and then go on to make whatever they want. And this is kind of the blank checkiest blank check of all time. <laughs> this is mm -hmm. like this, he is, he has carte blanche. He gets to do whatever he wants. And he makes this three hour multifamily epic about life and death and like all kinds of weird imagery and like he really went for it and he swung for the fences uh he still considers this his best movie of all time but some might argue because his follow-up movies included punch drunk love with adam sandler which is great mm -hmm. uh there will be blood which i think is kind of for me if you're talking about best movies of this century that's the one that kind of rises at the top in my head the fastest mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, I mean, the master is up there with that as well. Phantom thread is up there with that as well. Uh, mm -hmm. he, he's just incredible. He, he's an absolutely incredible filmmaker. Um, still never won an Oscar nominated eight times. He has still never won, but he'll have another chance. Mm -hmm. If, uh, things all pan out, he's supposed to have his next movie called soggy bottom coming out later this year, which is uh, yeah with, um, Philip Seymour Hoffman's son, right? Yeah. Philip Seymour Hoffman's son and, uh, Bradley Cooper and one of the girls from Heim. Uh, and <laughs> one of the co-directors of Uncut Gems. That's their cast. Oh, crazy. One of the Safties? Well, Benny, wow. Benny Safdie is uh, one of the leads wow. in the new PTA. Kind of crazy. I wonder why they picked. Oh, he's in acting in it. He's acting in it. Yeah, he's one okay, of the he's one of the main leads. Yeah. Uh, interesting. I think it's going to be great. It's going to be about like a tortured child actor, which seems to be a theme that PTA really gravitates towards. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, which you know, well, for one reason or another. 
Um, really, yeah. So let's dig into Magnolia a little bit because, yeah, like you said, he had kind of carte blanche to do whatever he wanted. He got a thirty-seven million dollar budget to put this movie together, which is pretty good for nineteen ninety-nine. Uh, he brought in all of his stock favorites, like everyone from from Heart Aid and from Boogie Nights that he really likes working with. They came back. Uh, and he also attracted some bigger name stars to this project. The most notable one being Tom Cruise. This is the first mm -hmm. time talking about Tom Cruise on this show. <laughs> so we got to mention him at least a little bit. Uh, this was a very interesting time for Tom Cruise, like the late 90s. In 1999, he had two movies come out, Eyes Wide Shut and this. Both wow, of this which, is prestige Tom Cruise. This is prestige Tom Cruise. This is... This is uh, you know, I'm not going to say that this is him trying, like, because I think he always <laughs> tried. You get the one thing you can say about Tom Cruise is that he never. Have you seen his little legs run in the Mission Impossible? Look at that movies? man run. Oh, man. He scrambles <laughs> like a little wind up toy. Like, he's so <laughs> nimble. Uh, you know, but like, you can never say he doesn't give everything his all. But I think this mm -hmm. was the period where he felt a little more pressured to be like a quote unquote real actor. You know, he's one of these guys. Mm -hmm who's been around forever and ever and like people are, there's still debate over whether he's just famous or if he can actually act. Mm -hmm. uh, so he does these two kind of big daring prestige movies back to back. Now he had to be kind of talked into this movie because as we'll get into Frank TJ Mackey is an unpleasant man. <laughs> Um, yeah, I was going to say, I went ahead and ranked all the characters, which we can get into later, oh, I'm but curious, spoiler yeah. alert, uh, Frank TJ Mackey is, at the bottom. He's at the bottom. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's a bad person, but he's uh, he's a fascinating mm -hmm. character. Um, mm -hmm. So I don't know. We'll, we'll see. I'm curious what the criteria for that is going to be. <laughs> but either way, like uh, Tom Cruise had to be talked into uh, joining the movie. But when he did, he was all in. And both he and PTA resisted the studio's efforts to label this a Tom Cruise movie. Like they weren't mm -hmm. using him as the principal marketing gimmick for it, you know, because they wanted it to be an ensemble and that's what Tom Cruise wanted as well. He's like, look, I'm not the, I'm not the star of this thing. I'm one of the stars of this thing. So it's fitting, you know, when the Oscars came around, he did get nominated for best supporting actor. Uh, I think it was the last time Tom Cruise has been nominated. Uh, that tracks. Never, never won. Yeah. But you, you know, mm -hmm. uh, what do you think of this performance? I, okay. I feel like I should, I should preface this with, I think that this performance is great. Yeah. I think that the movie wouldn't work without it. I think it is so bombastic and memorable. And it's just, it's just, I, it's just the character. That's the only reason why it's so low. It's just like, even though, and I, I think that's a testament to this movie that it, like, it makes you feel empathy for every single one of these people. Yeah. But like, if, of all of them, I have the hardest time feeling empathy for this person. Oh, Not sure. that I still don't, but it is very like, oh, you're spreading so much male toxicity to the world. Yeah, and his his anger is so misplaced too. When we mm -hmm. learn a little bit about, we learn a little more about who he is and like how he mm -hmm. got to be this way. It, it's there's a there's a missing reel somewhere in his life where we see how he went from being the sole caregiver to his mother raised by women respect, like who, who took care mm -hmm. of him to becoming this like raging misogynist, or at least like this guy performing as a raging misogynist. You know, I'm, I, I think it's, I think it's a testament to Tom Cruise's performance here that I'm never fully sure if he buys his own shit or not. Like the, yeah. the character of Frank, like, I don't know if he buys his own shit or if he's just mm -hmm. doubling down, you know? Um, yeah. But like at the same time, like whether or not he buys it is almost moot because he's putting it out into the world. 
Right. And know, he's developed like, this sort of like rabid following too. Yeah. 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 And he's willing to definitely like, if he doesn't mean it, he's willing to compromise that part of himself to come across, you know, mm-hmm. like th- this is a, this is a very good Tom Cruise performance. Like uh, it's mm-hmm. not subtle because the man doesn't do subtle and I don't think he should have to do <laughs> subtle. Like, Right. Part of the thing that works about him is that he has this electric like energy that he's just kind of bursting with kinetic energy all the time. And I think mm-hmm. that needs to translate to his character too, to the degree that uh, a screen performance is part the person you cast and part the character they're playing. I think it's really right for the role. And Oh yeah, definitely. And I think that the movie is kind of bursting with that same sort of kinetic energy that you're talking about. Absolutely. That's the great thing about this movie. Okay, you you tell you describe this movie to somebody. You say, okay, this is a movie about uh, a bunch of sad people in Southern California <laughs> whose lives intersect and they're all dying and they're all miserable and suicidal <laughs> and life sucks. This movie on paper sounds like the biggest fucking bummer in the world. Mm-hmm. It's and three hours long. Three hours. And it just mm-hmm. is not that at all. Yes, it gets heavy. Yes, it gets sad. But like... This is such a wildly entertaining movie. It's uh, such a fast three-hour movie. Yeah, at th- three hours, and I just go, I want to watch it again immediately. I, I mm-hmm. finished it, I'm just like, I want to put this on again and just have it running. <laughs> like, I love this world, and I love this these characters, and, uh, mm-hmm. and, and the music. Oh, my God. I, I love Amy Mann so much, and uh, mm-hmm. uh, PTA leans on her very heavily for some incredible music in this. And we, oh, can, yeah. we can get into that as we go along, but... I want, I'm curious to hear your rankings of these characters. Uh, oh, sure. And what, what was, first of all, what was your criteria for ranking them? My criteria is how much I like them. And, okay, this um, is just gut sort of, reaction. Like, yeah, do I do just, I enjoy just, this person? Yeah, just gut feeling. This says nothing to their performances <laughs> because I think if I were rating performances, it'd be much different. Okay. Um, but okay, so here we go. Uh, do you want me to start at the bottom or the top? Uh, start at the top because we know okay, where your bottom cool. is. Number... <laughs> Yeah. Uh, number number one is Claudia. Um, Claudia, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I read that shortly before coming on here that that PTA wrote her character first and then sort of stemmed off characters from her, and I think that that makes a lot of sense. I mean, she she's sort of, and I, she's like the linchpin. She's the final yeah. shot of the movie too. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, yeah, and she's played so well, and there's so much like she's she's buzzing in a different way that Tom Cruise is in a way that makes me just kind of want to just. Like that just makes me love her, yeah. and, and you know what I mean. Just like I want her to be good wherever she is right now. I want her to be healthy and loved and <laughs> taken care of. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So Claudia, number one. Every time she's on screen, I'm just kind of transfixed by her. Um. And number that's Malora, two, Melora Walters playing her. Yeah. I'll, I'll just chime Oof. in with those things. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Uh, number two, Phil the nurse, played by the amazing Philip Seymour Hoffman. Oh, heartbreaks. Um, heartbreaks. Love. Love him, love his quest, love his journey. So noble. Mm. <laughs> um, also, I mean, yeah, I am a little biased because I, I F- Philip Seymour Hoffman, I think, is like one of my favorite actors in this movie. Oh, he's, so. he's perfect. He's perfect in this. Yeah. Um, I think he's great. Number three is Stanley, the the young. Yeah. The, the, this the smart kid. Um, Jer- the, Jeremy, this is a thing that happens. Actor's name is Jeremy Blackman. He never did another movie. He's a he's a music producer oh, now. Yeah, never did another Whoa. never did another acting project. Damn. Yeah. I hope he had a good time. He was, no, I mean he was great. I think he's just one of those actors who just like didn't. Yeah, it just wasn't their calling, you know. But he was great in this movie. Yeah, my heart hurts for him. I just I just wish they had let him use the bathroom. Oh. <laughs> uh, 
Um, okay, number four is Linda. Yeah. Linda Partridge. Julianne Moore. Julianne Moore. Um, I love how big her performance is. I sent you an article shortly before we got on about um, Hunter Harris wrote this column about Julianne Moore's uh her line delivery of like, you have the boss yeah. and you come in here and tell me my life. And I just, ugh, oh, it's like equal parts devastating and funny. Mwah. Yeah. Mwah. Oh, she has a line delivery later where she says, you really must shut the fuck up. Like, <laughs> I don't know. I just love the way like she's her character is very heavily uh, medicated and going through a really tough time in this movie. And so she's, She's loopy, uh, and, and her mm -hmm. line deliveries are really creative. Yeah, so fun to watch. Um, number five, Jim, the police officer. John C. Riley, my favorite. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, a cab, but like he's also just so doofy and useless as a police officer that it's hard to be like you're part of the problem, even though he is. But like, yeah, I, I do like him and Claudia together. I think it's a very sweet pairing. I think that they match each other's energies so well. And it's one of those like you don't think it would work, but it does. And it is so sweet. And Ebert points out in his essay, too, that Jim and uh, Phil are kind of the only two really pure characters in this movie. But they're both very, very mm -hmm. good and compassionate people. Uh, yeah. and, and they don't come with too much baggage. Yeah, yeah. It's easy to root for him, despite his profession. Yeah. Um, number six, uh, quiz kid Donnie Smith. Yes. <laughs> Is there any greater pathetic sad sack than William H. Macy? Like, I no, don't, I don't mean that so as a good dig. He's just so perfect at it, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you just it's just his face. Like, the close-ups of him at the bar, looking at the bartender with the braces. Yeah. Just, that reveal, too, when we see that, like, Oh, it's like, why would he be getting braces? They keep making a big deal. His teeth are perfect. Why does he need braces? Why does he need braces? And then we just see mm -hmm. this bartender with his mouth full of metal, and all of a sudden everything clicks into place. Yeah. And you're like, oh, this poor guy. Yeah. And his monologue, his, I mean, you you quoted it at the beginning, but his, uh, I have love to give, is yeah. heartbreaking. But I don't know where to put it. Oh, oh. oh yeah. Yeah. Donnie. That's a tough one. Um, so, okay. So next, um, seven is Rose Gator. Okay. Uh, yeah. Jimmy Mel Gator's wife. And underrated um, performance in this movie. Melinda Dillon mm -hmm. uh, uh, doesn't get a lot of attention compared to everyone else because it is a small part. But yeah, I think she's outstanding. Yeah. And I, I read that PTA made his production crew watch Network uh, mm -hmm. before this. And it makes a lot of sense because she seems like, like Beatrice the wife in, in yeah. Network. Yeah, yeah. 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 Which is like, I think the, the Oscar win with like the shortest screen time, like she won Best oh, Supporting wow. Actress Oscar for like 45 seconds of screen time. Damn. Because that she's is just, a fun fact. Yeah. She's just that damn good. And I think this is kind of, yeah, you could definitely tell that's what they're going for with this role. Mm hmm. Um, number eight, Jimmy Gator. Mm -hmm. I, I, I appreciate that he's there, but I also don't find his arc super compelling. And also, I mean, he may or may not have molested his daughter. So minus points for that. Well, yeah, he's, uh, he, he, he's another one of those figures that kind of, uh, everything orbits around, you know, he sets a lot mm -hmm. of things into motion. Um, mm -hmm. and, uh, yeah, but I, I, I agree. There is. There's almost uh, well, I'm not even gonna say this because I think they both have very distinct arcs, but they, it almost feels redundant that there's two dying old men. Yeah, two different and things. that kind, 
Yeah. Yeah. That kind of that the final two are Earl Partridge and then last is Frank T. Magic TJ Mackey. Yeah. And I think that Earl Partridge is so low on my list because like the movie moves so fast and everything is so energy and buzz. And maybe when I get older, I'll have more appreciation for Earl Partridge's storyline. But things kind of grind to a halt with Earl Partridge, I feel. Well, you know, uh, I I think it's an incredibly moving performance from Jason Robards, who was mm-hmm. who ironically did die of a similar disease within a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, mm-hmm. he was struggling with his health when this movie came out. Uh, mm. And he's he's a brilliant actor. And I think this is a guy who is pretty unequivocally a bad dude uh, who made mm-hmm. a lot of bad decisions and hurt a lot of people in his life. And he's he's got nowhere to go now, but he just has nothing left to do but sit and wallow in it. And uh, mm-hmm. y- you can feel for him at least to that degree. Oh, yeah, definitely. It's just so stark in comparison to I feel like 80 percent of everything else that's going on in this movie. Yeah. And maybe it's needed, like, otherwise we would just have our butts clenched for three hours. Like, it is kind of nice to, like, oh, man. have his scenes and take a breath. I think this is one of those movies that when it came out, I don't think critics or audiences really knew what to make of it because we didn't mm-hmm. we didn't really have a shorthand for who PTA was at this point. We had one widely mm-hmm. received movie uh, and then Heart 8, which uh, was, was less seen. So, like, we didn't know. I think we needed a few more movies to be able to look back on Magnolia and see it for the accomplishment that it is and see that some mm-hmm. of the benchmarks that were coming through. And we kind of retroactively can put our good faith into the production of this that I don't think was very, I mean, this movie wasn't panned, you know, cr- critics mm-hmm. liked it. Uh, but I think that was the common misconception was that this movie is just too long and too pretentious and too boring. And mm. I don't think it's any of those things. Um, and I think it's, it's yeah. a movie that grows like Ebert in his essay too. He mm-hmm. said the same thing. It's like, he said, this is not the movie I saw when, mm-hmm. when it came out 10 years ago. It, like, it's a, it's a different, better, richer movie than I thought it was. And yeah, I, I'm and excited I, to, to, to grow with this movie and revisit it like more times in my life and see how my thoughts change. Yeah. I've, how many times have you seen this one? Just twice. Okay. I think this is like my fourth or fifth time with this oh, movie. Oh, wow. Uh, wow. But it's, it's been a couple years. Um, but it's, it's just so lovely. Uh, Mm-hmm. Some of the moments that really stand out to me. So uh, there's a there's the key arc of Julianne Moore's character Linda mm-hmm. is that she is you know pejoratively a a gold digger. She is mm-hmm. a, a a beautiful younger woman who married a rich uh, decrepit older man for his money. And mm-hmm. this is not a label that she applied to herself while things were good, but now that things are falling apart the weight of what she's doing is becoming kind of too much. Like she's, she's realizing that this is whether or not she was admitting it to herself. This is what she kind of signed on to do. And now it's real. And now this man is dying and he's a human being. He's not just some bag of bones. He's a human being that she does have a lot of love for and that she hasn't been very good to. Mm-hmm. And so this is all like flooding up on her and she needs all these medications and all these different things to snap herself out of it um mm-hmm. really beautifully played by julianne moore i think uh i wrote a note the first time that uh frank Mackey appears i'm like this guy would be a podcast sensation today if you <laughs> this guy would be like a, he would be on oh, the man. joe rogan show every other week like Ugh. he would be a huge deal but this oh, man this opening or not even the opening the opening i think is uh so wonderful and elegant so firstly we have this series of little vignettes 
mm -hmm. explaining all of these crazy coincidences. Okay, and so when researching this movie, PTA was leaning a lot on the writings of a guy named Charles Fort, who mm -hmm. was like an early turn of the century writer and researcher who wrote a lot about like paranormal uh, activities or unexplained phenomena. So he was the guy who was charting spontaneous combustion and frogs falling from the sky and like a Bermuda <laughs> Triangle, things like this, all these different urban myths or like spontaneous things like that. They were called Fortian because that was based off Charles Fort, you know, mm. and he had this term for this, this space, this realm in the ether that things could fall through. Like, so if you have a cloud of frogs raining on you, as has happened in real life, if that mm -hmm. happens, this is a thing that happens. It is a thing that happens. Uh, the, the term that he created for that little realm where the frogs were supposed to come from is Magnoia. So very, mm. which is so, and the, that and the movie taking place mostly on Magnolia Boulevard in Los Angeles is kind of where the mm -hmm. title comes from. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so these vignettes were kind of taken or, or loosely adapted from some of Fort's observations and stories. So a man who tries to kill himself only to be murdered on his way down to a fall that would have saved him had he not been spontaneously shot by his parents <laughs> because he loaded the gun trying to get them to stop fighting. Uh, you know, the man who gets in a fight with a, a Reno dealer or a, a crap dealer mm -hmm. and then later scoops him up out of a lake and drops him on a tree in a forest fire. Like mm -hmm. all these incredible coincidences that couldn't possibly happen or, or you know, they, well, obviously they happen, but like, you know, they, they're these wild things. And that's what the movie's kind of positing from the beginning. It's like, is this a coincidence? Does this mean something? Are we all connected mm -hmm. in a similar way? And do mm -hmm. our actions have these similar ripple effects? Mm -hmm. I think that's kind of the, the thesis that the movie's going off of. And then we get to meet the characters in this just incredibly elegant and fun montage with um, Amy Mann singing a cover of One is the Loneliest Number. We need all the a characters. great song to use in a movie, by the way. I think yeah. I, I I had just watched something recently that used one is the only summer. And I was like, it was the only good part of the movie that I had just seen. And I was like, I've heard this song used in better movies. Yeah. And then and then I watched this one and I was like, this is the movie. This is the one. This is the one. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's really great. And even the way like they make some uncomfortable cuts, like we have a scene where uh, Cynthia picks up a guy at the bar and then they're having sex. And then we cut to mm -hmm. a scene of her father having sex with her mother. Mm, and we don't mm -hmm. know that that connection is there yet. But then yeah. we also see the different ripple effects that are happening as we learn more about who Jimmy is and what he may have done. And mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm actually, I don't know where you come down on the Jimmy thing. I think he definitely did it. I don't know. Oh yeah. I don't yeah, even know if the too. movie is really being ambiguous about it. I feel like he, I think like, this is something that's so deplorable to him that mm -hmm. he's come to a moment in his life where he's got nothing left to lose and nothing. Uh, no, he, he has only honest things to say at this point. He confesses yeah. all his affairs to his wife. But even then, in his darkest, lowest moment, when he's being his most honest, he can't admit to himself mm -hmm. that he did this. Yeah, I think that even if he... Even if he's he's being 100% honest and transparent that he doesn't remember if he did or not, that's still a really shitty answer. Like, yeah. neither outcome is good. No, no, no. But we got to meet all these different characters, mm -hmm. and then it transitions into uh, a, a great scene with John C. Riley going to investigate a crime scene and finding mm -hmm. the two bodies in the closet, and she says, mm -hmm. those aren't mine. Like, <laughs> just a great, like, a great line. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and yeah, this is kind of where we get an idea of who Jim is as a cop. Like he's, 
he's forceful. He loves his job. Uh, he's compassionate, but he, I don't know. He might not be the best. He's not really respected within his field. When the mm-hmm. other cops come to the crime scene, even though he was first on the scene, the detectives aren't asking him for details. Yeah. And I was talking with uh, a friend about, I can't remember if we've talked about this at all, but like how police officers are portrayed on screen mm. and kind of the only, like the only way for me that a police officer can be portrayed on screen that doesn't feel like complete propaganda is if they're kind of doofy yeah. or bad at their jobs, you know, like they're too good to be a police officer. You know what I mean? And Jim is so earnest too. Like, mm-hmm. I don't think there's any, he, he there's no there's no uh maliciousness behind his actions which i think you know mm-hmm. is, informs a lot of things and i don't think he's even necessarily inept i think he's just yeah i, I think he's just kind of goofy like you say like i think mm-hmm. that uh you know the scene where he drops his gun uh and is fun mm-hmm. fumbling around impotently for it you know as all the <laughs> characters are kind of reaching their lowest ebb you know, yeah. it's it's painful. His power has literally been stripped away from him. He has nothing he can do. He can't do his job. He can't do the thing that he feels he's on the earth to do mm-hmm. because he screwed up because and he feels like a fool. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you know, Tom Cruise gets an incredible introduction <laughs> on stage with these lights coming up and thus Spock there, Zarathustra. And Anderson does a really <laughs> funny thing where he he cuts the song off abruptly before the final note uh, of the song can play. So it's just a, a crappy recording. And then this little feeble <laughs> banner unfurls behind him. And it's like, oh, okay, this guy's a joke. Like, yeah. he, he, he's got the body of a god. And he's, he's building up this audience. And he really believes his own shit. And damn, look at his hair. But mm-hmm. then you see that little uh, uh, banner unfurl and it's just like oh okay this is a silly man this is a mm-hmm. <laughs> this guy's full of shit <laughs> kind of undercuts his gravitas yeah and he is espousing just the most disgusting uh philosophies like anderson mm-hmm. is kind of basing this off of like these so-called pickup artists that were i think around the time he was written writing this the big thing that was being advertised in infomercials was like how to hypnotize women, you know, like yeah, use, use the power of your mind to get ladies to sleep with you. And this is kind of like a more perverted, uh, aggro version of that. Mm -hmm. Kind of presenting it for what it is, which is disgusting. Yeah. It's like much more openly violent. The program is called seduce Mm -hmm. and destroy. Like, so it's not, Mm -hmm. you know, condoning rape, but it's not, not condoning rape. You know, it's, Mm -hmm. uh, it's pretty nasty stuff. And then you have to wonder just what kind of shit bag would come up with this idea and what would make him Mm -hmm. tick like this. And we get to Mm -hmm. dig into that a little bit. Um, the great, like lengthy interview between him and April grace, uh, where, she's playing it really smart. I really like her performance. It's just, Oh yeah, me too. So, so measured, very measured. And she's, she's working, she's working him the entire time. Like he thinks he's so Mm -hmm. much above her, but like she knows what she's doing with the way she smiles, the way she presents herself, the way she kind of averts her eyes at certain points to kind of seem bashful. Like she's, she's Mm -hmm. allowing herself to be seduced so she could kind of get into his inner circle and then uh, uh, drop some bombs on him. Yeah, and it's nice that he spends like a good amount of the, his screen time with someone who is his equal, or, yeah. or or you know someone who can go toe to toe with him. Yeah, yeah, someone who is not—he's not just surrounded by toadies the entire movie. Right. Yeah. Um. And so the 
we also have this thread with Earl Partridge, who is revealed to be Frank's father, and then his nurse, played by Philip Seymour Hoffman, who is trying to... He's spending the whole movie basically trying to get in touch with Frank and tell him that his father's about to die. And, mm-hmm. my God, if, if any film character could be the personification of a big warm hug, it is... Mm. Philip Seymour Hoffman in this movie. He's so warm and empathetic and kind. Mm -hmm. And like, he just, he, he tears up when people tell their stories, even if they've been cruel to him and he, he cares for these silly dogs. And like, he's just, (laughs) you know, he stays an extra shift to make sure that like he, he, uh, uh, Earl gets sent off like by someone who yeah, cares about Yeah, he's kind of the saint of this movie. He is. He's just so good and so kind and you just you just love him to pieces. He um, kind of his arc uh reminds me of uh, Adam Sandler's in Punch Drunk Love since he spends a lot of the time on the phone in desperation. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. I'm wonder I think uh PTA was burned by like a telemarketer at some point <laughs> in his life because that's something he keeps going back to. Being stuck on a phone for long periods of time. A common motif. <laughs> Which uh, you could even apply like the interrogation scene in The Master to that. Like just a mm. long, uncomfortable uh, conversation. Um, yeah. Oof. Yeah. I'm, I, I don't know. It's just something I wanted to comment on because I think Philip Seymour Hoffman was so completely versatile. You could see him in another Tom Cruise movie, Mission Impossible 3, where he is mm-hmm. like a really scary bad guy. And then you see oh, him man. in this where it's just all cuddles and warm teddy bears. Yeah. And, and I like soft Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yes, yes, I do too. <laughs> or soft and goofy, you know. I, my mm-hmm. first exposure to him as a kid was in Twister. And so oh, wow. I always thought he was just this big, broad, goofy comic actor, which he could oh, do. Man. He could do that great. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, along came Polly. He's the best part of that shitty movie. <laughs> he invented the term sharding. Um, but yeah, no, he's, he's, uh, he's just so unbelievably versatile. And I think this is, if you want to see the softest, warmest PSH, this is the one to go for. Mm-hmm. Uh, so of course we meet Cynthia, who we've mentioned, who is a cocaine addict and she's Jimmy's daughter. She's been, uh, kind of in a bit of a downward spiral and she and Jim kind of enter into a very sweet romance that again, reminded me of punch drunk love. I feel like, uh, yeah, two, yeah, that's a good connection too. two just kind of broken weirdos who find each other. Like, I think, uh, that's a beautiful story that I always like. That's the like. dream. That's the dream. <laughs> uh, yeah. And then uh, there's, there's some interesting threads going on with Dixon, who is this young boy who lives in the neighborhood mm-hmm. uh, uh, near the crime scene. And he's talking a lot about this guy, Worm, who like did it. And then there's this great interrogation mm-hmm. scene. like, is your son the worm? Is your son the worm? So, mm-hmm. You know, so this kid kind of moves through the different stories like almost yeah. randomly when when uh, uh, Jim loses his gun, Dixon's the one who picks it up and runs off with it. When mm-hmm. Linda overdoses and is dying in her car, he's the one who calls the ambulance, you know, after mm-hmm. he, he steals her wallet. But he, he calls the ambulance and like he he's kind of like interwoven throughout all these stories uh, in interesting mm-hmm. ways. Yeah, it kind of feels like he's living in his own movie. Yeah. Like you could almost make a separate movie with this kid. That's the cool thing. Like you could break out all of these little individual stories and have a really good movie. Like you could have mm-hmm. a good like 90 minute movie out of any of these. I think the, mm-hmm. the quiz kid show would be an amazing movie, both center. Like you could split the Donnie yeah. and the, uh, um, Oh God, what's Stanley. Stanley. Thank you. Yeah. You could split mm-hmm. those two stories and kind of parallel them in the same movie. Mm-hmm. Also, I was watching that. I'm like this, this must be like the hardest quiz show of all time. Like, 
I know. I've, I've been is... watching a lot of Jeopardy lately, yeah. and that does not even hold a candle to these questions. No, like these are intense. Like these are like sing the opera in the original language. Yeah, or, or like the 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 perfect pitch one always threw me because I don't have perfect pitch. So like Oof. I don't know. Like oh, what are you doing with this? I don't get it. Uh, yeah, I have a hard time believing that this is like the longest running quiz show of all time because it seems so difficult. It seems like you need to be a child genius to do well at mm -hmm. it. I like the yeah. thread and too it... of like Donnie was a child genius until he got struck by lightning. Mm -hmm. And now he's just kind of <laughs> lost that ability and he's just kind of this sad loser. But um, yeah. Yeah. And Donnie, of course, he just wants to be loved. He's in love with this bartender mm -hmm. named Brad. And in the bar, mm -hmm. in the bar scene, he has this great conversation with Henry Gibson, who is the lead in Nashville, or one oh. of the leads in Nashville. Um, again, showing up for an ensemble drama, uh, <laughs> and he he's just credited as Thurston Howell, which is the name of the character from Gilligan's Island. Uh, so I don't think oh. he has a real name. He's just a <laughs> just a fancy looking gay gentleman trying to uh, uh, buy Brad's <laughs> affection, and Brad's a big dummy. He doesn't know. A fancy looking gay gentleman. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah, so all these things are just kind of coming together. I, I really found um, the Quiz Kid stuff to be very impactful. And it, this was a this was definitely a comment on celebrity and on like things like that. But the core thesis of this movie, I think Ebert identified it, too, is just that it's it's uh it's the harm we do to our children it's it's mm -hmm. the, the legacies we leave behind so yeah stanley has just a miserable horrible fucking stage dad played by michael bowen who who plays sleazy <laughs> guys better than anybody um but yeah what he's just such a creep and he's just like using mm -hmm. his son to like uh make his living because he's a failed actor and then we mm -hmm. learn that like donnie's parents took all his winnings Obviously, Earl and Jimmy are both terrible fathers, you know, like there's, there's this mm -hmm. thread running through of bad dads doing bad things. And that's where the ripple effects kind of come in. That's that's, you know, the, the, the you could you could point it all back to Jimmy, like Jimmy starting the mm -hmm. show or like maybe to Earl because he financed the show we learned. You know, mm -hmm. and so Earl kind of seems like the big daddy warbucks of this whole thing. Yeah, yeah, I think that would be fair to say. Like that was a really great reveal when uh, we kind of cut to Melora Walters uh, at home. We don't, we know she's mm -hmm. watching TV, but we don't know she's watching this show and watching mm -hmm. the show where her dad collapses and like uh, Stanley mm -hmm. has a bit of a mm -hmm. breakdown and like everything goes really horribly yeah. wrong on this show, and she's watching it. Mm -hmm. Um. And then we see the Earl Partridge logo at the end. I, I I am rambling on a little bit and kind of jumping around, but a uh, couple of yeah, so does this movie. <laughs> it does. That's kind of in the spirit of things. Mm -hmm. I uh, some things I noticed just by having subtitles on, or mm -hmm. uh, or watching it on Amazon, which has the X ray. The voice on the yeah. phone that Philip Seymour Hoffman is talking to the entire time, Paul F. Tompkins. Yeah. Had no ah! idea. Paul F. Tompkins. <laughs> Uh, who uh, also appeared in There Will Be Blood. I guess he's just buddies with uh, PTA, so that's awesome. Wow, Clark. what a cute friendship. I bet, man, yeah. PTA must be like a funny guy. <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, he, I mean, Maya Rudolph <laughs> likes him. Like, mm -hmm. he, he works with a lot of, com Adam Sandler, he works with a lot of comedy people. Man, um, I would love to see a PTA, like, like farce. Yeah. <laughs> God, maybe, is that what Phantom Thread was? Uh, yeah secretly could you argue that comedy. it is like a secretly like very dark comedy 
And it is. I mean, I think that Phantom Thread is like a fun rom com after you watch it like four times. Almost like it. It has those <laughs> trappings. Such a strange, beautiful movie. Man, I want to watch that one again. <laughs> I've only seen it once. I want to go back to it. Uh, yeah, yeah. So I have some notes. Hang on. Yeah, and then obviously we mentioned uh, Patton Oswalt showing up in the beginning of this mm-hmm. movie as a scuba diver. Mm-hmm. That was a, a, a surprise I didn't really realize. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, uh, the the big moment I really want to talk about. So mm-hmm. all the characters are kind of reaching their lowest point of hopelessness mm-hmm. by about the two-hour mark. Jim has lost his gun. Linda is trying mm-hmm. to kill herself in the garage. Uh, uh, mm-hmm. Frank is learning that his dad's going to die. Like Stanley has peed his mm-hmm. pants on TV everything's falling <laughs> apart for everyone. They're losing hope. And then mm-hmm. Jason Robards gets to deliver, God, like a 10 minute monologue to a really long, beautiful monologue, just about all his regrets in life. He's, he's reminiscing mm-hmm. about his first wife and how badly he treated her and then how badly he treated mm-hmm. his son and, Oh, the regrets and Oh, this fucking life. It's so hard. Mm-hmm. And things are seeming, this is the point in the movie where everything is seeming so bleak and so hard to get past and then we have a musical number. The audacity, <laughs> yeah. the audacity of PTA to stick a musical number in here. And it's not like a traditional yeah. like tap dance and canes musical number, but every character starts singing the same song. The the Wise mm-hmm. Up by Amy Mann, one of my very favorite songs. They all Aww. start singing this song at the same time, just showing mm-hmm. that there is this undercurrent. Like whether or not yeah. Like it's a coincidence. Whatever it is, all of these people feel compelled to sing along to this song at this moment. They're all in the right place to be hearing it. Mm-hmm. And it's also a nice little moment of of, uh, of 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 catharsis for us as the viewers. We've just been dragged through the mud. We've just heard a long mm-hmm. monologue about how much life sucks before you die. Mm-hmm. And now <laughs> the world is kind of magical again. Like, Mm -hmm. yes, yes, this is a hard life and everything sucks and everything's difficult. Things are changing all the time and it's scary. But sometimes you'll break into song. Sometimes frogs will fall from the sky. (laughs) Steve, do you you remember what you felt when you first saw this movie and they broke out into song? Oh, man, for whatever reason, it didn't register with me as much. Like, it didn't impact me as much until the second time I saw it. I think mm. I was too blown away by the frogs the first time I saw it because <laughs> yeah, the frogs kind of overshadow the the singing. The singing is a bit more of a subdued it's miracle. A, it's a subdued moment, but like the <laughs> yeah. So the, my first time watching, I was just like blown away by this movie because of the frogs. But the second time watching mm-hmm. it, the the singing was what really got to me. You know. Yeah, I think the first time I watched it, I was I was watching it with a friend, and we were both like is this corny? Do we like this? I don't know. And then the second time last night when I watched it, I was like, no, this is beautiful. I, I like this. I'm on board. I, I, I felt no corn. Yeah. I felt no corn. I, I think it's, <laughs> I think it's an honestly felt moment. And I think mm-hmm. it's something the movie needed and, mm-hmm. you know, just me and my personal life, I'm going through kind of some hard transitional times. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, Mm-hmm. I I needed I needed that you know I needed to mm-hmm. I needed that kind of um, that little bit of magic uh, yeah. that this movie added you know and it kind of mm-hmm. also opens up it opens up that finale because all of a sudden this is a world where these strange things do happen where where seven or eight mm-hmm. people could just simultaneously start singing the same song um, yeah and I think those magical touches sort of elevate this movie like it's a beautiful ensemble piece but I think this this 
clicks it one ring above to add those sort of otherworldly, the frogs and the singing. Yeah. I mean, so let's talk about these frogs. Because uh, <laughs> yes, the frogs have been debated endlessly. <laughs> so they, they're, they're forecasted a little bit, you know, literally. They're literally forecasted throughout the movie. The title cards for each kind of section of the movie is a weather forecast, which mm -hmm. like... In on retrospect, <laughs> you kind of see that it's building tension. You know that there's something weird that's going to happen with the weather, mm -hmm. um, and we don't know exactly what. There are billboards around that say Exodus eight two, which is a Bible passage describing the the plague of frogs uh, unleashed on Egypt. Uh, mm -hmm. Let's see, I have it written down here. But if you refuse to let them go, I will plague your whole country with frogs. That's Exodus eight two. <laughs> what a threat! Yeah, right. Come on. Uh, <laughs> So I, it, it always surprises me in a way. Like I know it's coming, but I never know exactly when, you know? Mm -hmm. So it, it happens when uh, uh, John C. Riley is going to stop Donnie from breaking into his employers and like robbing the place. Yeah. Uh, and it's just like very sudden. It's like, boom, there's this frog. And then we get to stick on it a little bit. And we see this is a very realistic animatronic frog that's like breathing and twitching and like sliding down the windshield. Yeah, and has been injured by like the rate of impact. Uh, yeah, there's guts and blood all over the windshield. And then yeah. when the torrent happens and when these like thousands and thousands of frogs start falling, the roads are so slick that cars are crashing because there's just mm -hmm. so much. It's incredibly impactfully felt. And we yeah. get the sense of like, they, they managed to get the sound right. This doesn't sound like a heavy hailstorm. This sounds like wet, floppy things that are like a, a two or three pounds falling onto your roof yeah. from a huge distance. Yeah. And it's not exactly played for comedy, I feel like. I no. feel like it's just played straight of like, hey, this is what happens when frogs rain down from the sky. And uh, Stanley has that line, and it's beautifully mm -hmm. shot where we see the frogs falling oh, down the silhouette. The frog shadows. Him. And oh, so good. He's just saying, this is something that happens. <laughs> you know, he's, he's oh, saying it's, so good. it's kind of a mantra to himself. It's it's he's reaffirming. It's like, oh, I've read this. You know, this is my yeah. superpower is that I read things and I know things. And I read yeah. about these frog things because it does happen. And I think in that moment, I feel like hope for Stanley and his well-being and future that he's like sort of the calmest person in this whole sequence yeah he's like I mean to be fair he's in a safe place but he's like this is a thing that happens and it's happening to me right now and it's fine he's confronted a lot about himself and I think you get the mm -hmm. sense that at the end of this movie he's not going to follow Donnie's path he's he's mm -hmm. going to branch off into something happier you know because the last thing you hear him say is waking his dad up in the middle of the night and saying you have to be nicer to me just, yeah. just oh, being very direct and straightforward and just saying, look, this, this is the way it is. I'm not going to be your meal ticket mm -hmm. anymore. I'm not going back on TV. I'm not doing these things. I'm going to do stuff for me, and you have to be nicer. Mm -hmm. But they, yeah. it's, a, it's a totem. It's him saying this kind of thing does happen. But I think we, watching the movie, we understand that it's not just some random thing that's happening. Like, I think we need mm -hmm. to feel like this is happening for a reason. Mm-hmm. But what is that reason? And that's the maddening thing. And how did the gun end up with all the frogs? The gun falls out <laughs> of the sky. So is this all tied up with Dixon? Like, is Dixon somehow like a god character who's walking through the movie, <laughs> like manipulating things? What was in that box when we first meet him? Was it full of frogs? I don't know. <laughs> Man, had you, when you first saw this, uh, so when I first saw this, I had sort of heard about the frogs. Uh -huh. Like, it's sort of a big thing in pop culture, I feel like. So when it did, I was like, oh, right. 
this is the part where the frogs come down. So when you first saw it, um, were you prepared for that? Did it come out of nowhere? Did it shock you? It came out of nowhere when I first saw it. Uh, oh, I, man. I, I, oh. I remember just like hanging out after school one day with my friend Abby. We rented this movie uh, and we just randomly kind of wanted to sit down and watch it. And we were both just <laughs> transfixed for three hours <laughs> and just had no idea oh, what man. was coming next. And uh, it blew us away like, completely. That's a great feeling. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's rare that a movie will like completely surprise me anymore. Like I kept <laughs> thinking about that, watching the how how many uh rings that philip seymour hoffman has to jump through to get in touch with frank mackey he has to mm -hmm. order pornography in the cutest scene <laughs> ever where he's yeah. just very shyly <laughs> adding peanut butter and cigarettes to his order so it doesn't just look like he's ordering a bunch of porn yeah i love when the, the lady is like do you still want the peanut butter and cigarettes? <laughs> yeah she's she's like yeah okay i've been through this before <laughs> which i have to I'm working in a bookstore like i've had to i've had to do that with people like they come Aww. up they'll, they'll buy way more books than they need because they really <laughs> just want the porno mag but they want yeah. to feel like that's not all they're getting <laughs> i'm like that's dude i'm not good. gonna judge you whatever um <laughs> But yeah, yeah, the, there are all these loop, uh, loops that he has to jump through because, I mean, this isn't a pre-internet world, but this is probably a pre-Google search engine world where everything would just mm -hmm. be at your fingertips. Like you wouldn't necessarily have those skills yet. So mm -hmm. yeah, you know, he has to go through some rigmarole, but like this is a movie that ne wouldn't necessarily work if it were set today because it's all about intangible connections. And these days we're, mm -hmm. we're connected in very real ways, like all the time. Yeah, like, all these people would have like mutual friends on whatever social network. Yeah, and would, yeah, exa exactly. That would be the Magnolia <laughs> pitch for 2021. It's just like, okay, yeah, they're all, they're all in the yeah. same It would be list. seven minutes long. Yeah, yeah. It's like, oh, uh, well, how did they know? Oh, they met at a work party. The end. <laughs> da -da 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 -da. Yeah. yeah. Oh boy, there's just so much to unpack with this movie, but uh, I, I I want to encourage everyone to just go out and watch it if you haven't watched this yet. Uh, I, I I I'm really grateful to see that the somewhat toxic reputation this movie had when it came out has all but gone. I think people are pretty on board with it now. I think people understand yeah, it a little better now. I feel like it's it's aged surprisingly well. It's aged great, especially yeah. like. Even the misogynist stuff, because this is a commentary on misogyny and on the way it perpetrates mm -hmm. itself in our culture, you know, so it's... Yeah, and there's no way you could confuse the movie for endorsing TJ Maxx. Oh, Mackey. God, no, never, never. And yeah, yeah, absolutely. And like in a Me Too era, like it feels relevant still to see a guy like this who's like peddling this kind of mm -hmm. shit and knowing that this would be successful. Like this is mm -hmm. not out of the realm of possibility to be like a hit, like motivational speaking course, you know? Mm -hmm. um do you have anything else to say about magnolia oh let's see i think uh we touched on pretty much everything i feel like this is maximalist cinema i love the way the camera is pretty much consistently moving and whipping and following these characters and and creating this sort of tension um i love the rain i love the sound design in this movie i love the performances um i feel like it's kind of the opposite of phantom thread in that way in sort of uh intensity i suppose yeah um but they're both wonderful and yeah it just sort of feels like it's on fire and it's something that i forgot about after i had first watched it and got to re-experience again just a year later so highly encourage you to watch it if you haven't already and to re-watch it if you have 
Absolutely. This this is one of those movies. Every time I see it, I I have a moment where I'm just like, is this my favorite movie? Could this be my favorite <laughs> movie? And I've been having a lot of those lately. But like this one is, <laughs> it, this one grows every time I see it. I I just find something new and uh, wonderful to appreciate about it every time I see it. And and so it's Ugh. it's up there for me. I I really love Magnolia. Nice. We love it. I think that Punch Drunk Love is still my favorite PTA. Um, just because it's like a little bit it's short and contained and like does a lot in 90 minutes and is, is, has a beautiful color palette and is a little bit more my bag, but, but Magnolia, I think is in the top five for sure. Uh, Punch Drunk Love is one of my favorite Ebert reviews because I think he unlocked that movie in such an elegant way. Just saying that this Paul Thomas Anderson watched an Adam Sandler movie and saw what was going on underneath it. And he basically oh. just made an Adam Sandler movie. He made yeah. a high class Billy Madison. It's about a, a, <laughs> a put upon schlub who has these unexplained fits of rage. Like mm -hmm. that's kind of every Adam Sandler character. But, oh my God. But I love that. PTA found Oof. something in it uh, that really gave an extra depth. So I love that review. Definitely check that out. Yeah, for sure. Michaela, oh my God, it's so good to have you back. Uh, oh, thank you for thank being you. here. Uh, do you have anything going on you want to tell people about or anything you could plug? Oh, pff, uh. <laughs> no pressure. You don't have to. Uh, you know, not right now, but if I'm on this podcast again, hopefully, yes. <laughs> okay. All right, cool. We will uh, We will have you back then. You, you talked me into it. <laughs> All right, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning in. We are Rogers List Pod at all the different uh, social medias and emails and whatnots and who's it's. My other show is called Ultra 64. Uh, we're getting ready to start our next season where we are going to be covering the Wii U, every single game released in North America. It's going to be a hell of a journey. So check that show out wherever you get your podcasts. All right, everybody. I am going to let you go. Watch out for falling frogs and have a great <laughs> night. Bye. You look like a perfect fit A girl in need of a Suspect they could never love anyone.